Welcome to the Self-Made Expert Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Morgan, and I love speaking with people who are cultivating economically valuable expertise outside the world of academia and the licensed professions. Some of these conversations end up on this podcast. You can learn more about my work helping indie consultants build an expertise moat at philipmorganconsulting.com. Josh Brammer, welcome to the Self-Made Expert. Thanks, Philip. Glad to be here. I'm glad you could join me. Uh, we were exchanging emails not long ago and got into a conversation that made it seem to me like you have you're in the smack dab in the middle of you know this journey from something to self-made expert. And I wanted to um, to get your take on how that's going, what you're doing, what the journey is. And you were gracious enough to agree to be interrogated about that. So let's do it. <clears throat> <laughs> Sounds like a blast. Um, why don't we start with like, what, what were you, I don't know, let's say two years ago. What did, what right. did your career look like? What were you doing? That kind of thing. So two years ago, I had always gotten pegged in marketing agencies as the operations guy who also did client service. Mm. And what that really meant is from a service firm standpoint, I was right between the sales team, the delivery team, and the finance team. And that put me in this really strange position where I got to see a lot of different angles. Mm -hmm. When I describe that journey to people who are in the technology space, what I really realized is for the last 15 years, I've been a product marketer at service firms who don't know anything about product marketing. Can I stop they, you right there? I, I hate sure. interrupt. Well, actually, I don't hate interrupting. I do it all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're fighting this three-front battle, <laughs> which yeah. we're, we're advised by, I think, Sun Tzu to never do. Anyway. Correct. <laughs> what's In your view, what's the difference between service and product marketing? Why are they different? So product mar marketing, you are going out into the market and you are you're developing some solution and that solution is typically done in a way that can scale as as well as it can mm -hmm. so you're trying to find something that is specialized enough that there's a big enough market but you are solving it either in some unique way and promoting that um, but you know for instance it, an example like drift so Drift is going after product marketing. They're in this chat space. They, they just keep creating more and more products, but each product is very specific to solve a very specific pain point. And that's really the, the bread and butter for a product marketer right. is they understand pain and then they try to solution around it. Switch gears. What I found is that for every service firm that I worked in, they never thought about solving pain. They always thought about themselves. Why do you think that is? Like I run into that all the time as well. And I, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm already taking us off topic here, but this is such an interesting and I think relevant um, discussion. I want to have it. So why do you think they can't, they don't have that sort of um, loyalty to the pain first? I think it's actually an economics problem. Um, I, I think that it's because when you sit down and you get hired into a service firm, what they tell you is be as billable as you can be. Mm -hmm. And the entire DNA of the firm typically focuses on you doing a skill as much and as frequently as you can. Right. And because of that, you look at your hands and your skills and your brain as the, the thing. Right it becomes the focus because it's the way all utilization and billable hours and invoicing and everything about the firm actually comes about, becomes about the tribe of people inside the walls doing the thing they do. And because of that, it, sh it, it, it becomes part of the team. It becomes part of the culture. And that is your marketing. Your marketing is just a reflection of what you do, how you talk about and how you think about yourself. So to me, that goes really high up, up, you know, you know, the 30,000 foot view of all of this is people can't market their professional service firm because nobody cares about your service, but it's all you care about. And it's all that's in your focus. So 
just tr trying to put that in different words, not because yours didn't do the job, but just really drives the point home. Um, it's, it sounds like you're saying there's one KPI that matters <laughs> to the professional services firm and its utilization. And so mm -hmm. that matters so much that it, it kind of, uh, influ it, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, it just sort of poisons their marketing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's so fascinating. That's a really interesting lens to look at that through. Cause yep. I know from the, you know, the financial side, utilization matters. If you're going to pay people a fixed salary, <laughs> you, you kind of care about what you're getting out of that as the employer. Mm -hmm. But I'd never thought of it as a sort of uh, poison pill for marketing. Right. It, I think that it poison is, is a, is a good word for it because what happens is if you try to market in the way that good marketing works today, mm -hmm. it goes right against everything that utilization would, would like make good about your firm. So it's really, I view it this way. It's like having the thermostat set to 80 degrees and you've got the window open during a blizzard. You're just, <laughs> you're, you're fighting two, you know, elemental differences yeah. and it short fuses people's brains. And that's why we can't market our service firms. Oh, that's fascinating. Is there, um, just some sort of more specific example form of that, that you could surface here? Like, um, you know, you see this on a firm's website and, and, and that's actually what's going on behind the scenes is if you got the thermostat turned up and the window open, does something like that come to mind? Yeah. So I was on a call today with a wealth management firm and let me pull up their website because this is a great example. I'm going to read to you their, um, one year old website. Okay. The headline, Integrated Wealth Management, answering all your questions and helping you solve your investment and retirement puzzle. Hmm. Get started. I'm and I'm biting my tongue pretty hard here. Right? <laughs> and this is his best attempt to spend $20,000 on a website to look like a, a new and attractive firm that, that's doing good marketing. Mm-hmm. And the simple version of this, what I'm doing today with, with my clients is helping them pick a single problem that they are going to focus all their marketing on. Mm -hmm. Because if they focus on the problem, it flips everything about what they've always talked about for 20 or 30 years, which is themselves and how great they are. They have to focus on what problem they're solving for clients. And that's, that's when it switches to something that's actually effective because people only care about themselves. That's the interesting piece about two sides of this coin. Yeah. Clients only care about themselves. So you have to talk about them, not about how great you are. Yeah. Most professional service firms sound like this. I could go to 100 different firms right now and it would say, it's scary out there. You shouldn't try this by yourself. Hire our team of experts. Yep. Um, folks at home, please do me and Josh both a favor. Uh, go to clutch.co. It's a website. Pull up a list of just any category there of professional you know, marketing firms or dev shops. And, um, you know, if you have the time, look through 100. But if you don't, look, just look through 10 websites. <laughs> okay. Just for, pull from the list. Sequentially or random, it doesn't matter. And I think you'll, you'll see exactly what Josh is talking about. It's just like they all, I, in, I've done this before, and they all kind of melt into this like gray putty of, you know, undifferentiated gray, which I don't think is what you want for a website. <laughs> Usually not the most effective marketing tool is to have a big pile of putty as yeah. your welcome mat. Yeah, there you go. Okay, back to your story, Josh. So you're um, fighting this three-front battle in uh, marketing agencies, and... Um, and, but that's not what you're doing now, right? That's not what I'm doing now. And the reason is this. So I'll, I'll tell it in a, in a timeline. Every role that I've had for the last 10 to 15 years has been, let's get a great group of people together, build an awesome culture, and we're all going to do something completely unique. 
each of us. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have video and copy and websites and marketing automation and IoT thermostat programming and .NET and Android. All of these services, you line them up. And if you are thinking from a utilization standpoint, suddenly you feel like you just went to battle with all of these different, you know, you know, it's a call to arms. You've got all of these different weapons and, and specialists. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a great idea. Diversify. You know, you know, fight on, on all fronts. Right. But to, to really work to, to build expertise, you have to focus on the same problem over and over and over again until you see the patterns and yeah. until you get really, really good at solving that problem. But that's not the way we've been trained to grow firms. We, we grow them with this horizontal spread out and get as, as diverse with our service offerings as we can. And it makes it impossible for us to market. You have at some point, I imagine, sort of pushed back at firm owners about that horizontal approach. Yeah. For, for example, uh, two years ago, I completely shut down the inbound marketing firm uh, division w- within my, my last full-time job. Mm-hmm. We had three people working for six clients trying to do inbound marketing. And across the room, 20 feet away, we had five developers building connected thermostats for enterprise thermostat companies. Did those people even talk to each other? Could they even no. make eye contact? <laughs> no, it, it, we'd have company lunches and it was so strange. It just, there was, there was no cohesion between it because they had nothing in common. Hmm. They didn't even talk to the same clients ever. Yeah. That's interesting. So what are some uh, anonymized, please, uh, some things you've heard uh, firm principals say when you push back against this sort of, uh, you know, unspecialized horizontal approach? Um, One of the things that you have is you have the pressure as a firm owner to bring up the next generation. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody has been at the firm for a long time, and they've become specialists. So let's say they're a creative director or a video producer. You have this, this odd loyalty because you can't do what this person does. But you also have the challenge of feeding all these mouths. And it, so it, it puts the firm owner in this position where they want to be able to say yes to every client that comes to the door. And they also want to say yes to everybody in the firm. Right. The, everybody in the firm says, yeah, I want to be specialized or I want to do, I want to do this thing that is my craft. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of courage to say no to somebody or to even hint at the fact that you're not going to employ them in the future. Right. That is the biggest struggle that I've seen with firm owners because they basically have to stand up and say, hey, you might be out of a job in two years because I'm going to take a stand on positioning my firm. That terrifies people who own marketing firms, unless they have some core um, principle on, on which they are building the, the whole concept of, of, the, of the firm. Yeah, I think that is part of why I work more with um, individuals is they, they still have to make that declaration of focus, but you know, there, no one else is seeing the end of their job as a result of that, mm-hmm. usually yeah. not. And, and I've been the hatchet man in multiple situations now, because I would always come in as the operations person and mm-hmm. say, from a financial standpoint, we, we have to do this. But what I was really doing is I was stopping feature creep on the services we were providing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's crazy. Those situations where the truth is a lot simpler, but you just can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, but th- this, again, this is not what you're doing today. You're, you're developing a new expertise, right? I am. Let's talk about, let's talk about that. I mean, I could, we could talk a lot (laughs) about what you've seen on the inside of agencies, but I want to kind of talk about your story. So uh, what is this new expertise that you, that you're currently building self-made expertise? What does it look like? So I am doing copywriting and positioning for professional firms who want to build a marketing engine. They, they want to get past the referral Mm -hmm. and they need 
they need to explain what they do in the simplest terms possible. Yeah. So how is, okay, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I think I know how this is not a skill, but Josh, how is that not a skill? You mean a skill for their themselves? Well, I guess I should say I, I see skill as differentiated from expertise mm -hmm. um, in some ways that are seem simple and obvious to me, but probably when I explain them, you're going to be like, ha ha, that doesn't really help. So please be ha ha, that doesn't really help if that's your honest reaction. So I see skill as like the ability to get something done. It's like craft. It's like I know how. And then I see expertise as probably some form of skill plus contextual awareness so that you can make better decisions about how to deploy skill or where to not deploy skill at all or even like what to build. I guess that would be my working definition of expertise. It's not great, mm -hmm. but it's a start. So, um, you know, what are the skills that you're working with? I guess let's, let me retract my earlier question and, and let's ask that one instead. What are the skills you're working with? And then how, how is there, a, what, what does a layer of expertise or the connective tissue of expertise between those skills look like? Okay. So this will be fun. Can I use a, an agile methodology analogy? Would that be helpful? Um, yes, that would be great, actually. Okay. So the way I view it is traditionally what happens is that the person in charge of marketing a service firm goes out into the world and finds somebody who can build a WordPress site. And they go to that person and they say, I need a new website. My old one's not doing whatever it's supposed to be doing. Right. They spend three to six months, they go through a lot of meetings, and what happens is someone in the world takes orders from the firm and tries to summarize an unfocused position and writes a bunch of copy that sounds like we're integrated wealth management. What happens along that process is the client gets no guidance on how to focus the words and the position, and even the, where, where they should be in the market. Mm -hmm. So I view it as I'm basically a product owner for my clients, and I have to help them decide of all of the 100 messages they could pick, of all of the pain points they could pick, they have to pick one to lead the charge with. And most people who are developing copy and websites for these firms, just they, they may even make the client write the copy because it's too um, it's too audacious to try to put the words in the mouth of the of the client or they water it down to a point that it's it doesn't even mean anything it's that gray pile of putty yeah well i was going to continue playing devil's advocate josh what gives you the right the person who's hired uh, I'm, uh, let's assume that you've been hired to you know do this website right uh -huh. What gives you the right to tell the client what business they're in? I don't have the right, but there, there's a trick to all of this, Philip. Okay. Let's pretend that the only people who buy things in the world are humans. Okay. And that humans at their core buy things emotionally and they buy things to solve their own problems. Okay. This is starting to sound a lot like the world I live in, but go on. Yeah. So, so let's pretend that people buy things from people. And because of that, if I rewind 20 years ago, I was a youth pastor. And my job as a youth pastor was to make videos. I studied video production uh, back at Ball State. Oh, interesting. So my first skill was taking... 20 hours of footage and turning it into two minutes that made moms cry when they saw the video. Okay. Nice. So that they'd volunteer for the youth group. And then I had to create videos that made seventh graders sit still for two minutes. <laughs> so part of what I've been studying for my entire career is how do I say a little bit to get the right emotional response out of somebody 
mm-hmm. to help them take the step they want to take. Because right. everybody wants to go somewhere. They all want to do something. You just have to figure out what that person actually wants and open a very clear door for them. Mm-hmm. It's not coercion. It's not manipulation. You just clear out everything that's in their way, all of the noise and all the distractions. Right. So what I do for clients is I actually just listen long enough and ask them about their, their clients. <laughs> and if I would say, hey, Philip, what's your best client say during your best engagement? What does that even look like? And right. you tell me, and I distill that into your message, it's going to be so much more effective than all of the quippy, clever copywriting that you could hire out. Right. I'm a therapist for business owners who don't know they need therapy. I call myself a copywriter. Hmm. Why? Why not just call yourself a business therapist? Because nobody wants that. People, this is what people say to me, Josh, I haven't been able to explain what business I'm in for 20 years. Wow. And they're still in business (laughs) and they're still in business. Yeah. Um, I had a branding firm hire me this year. And they said, Josh, if we got all eight people in our company together at a cocktail party and you ask them what, what business we're in, none of them would say the same thing. Hmm. Fascinating, isn't it? it? It's, it's amazing. But to me, it comes down to two things. There's a lack of clarity for the leader in these firms. They don't have a process and they don't have the words to explain what it is they're trying to do and the direction they're trying to go. And copywriting is the easiest thing for them to hire because they'll all admit that they're not copywriters. It's the help they're willing to hear. Here's the, here's the key with all positioning. You have to talk about the message that the recipient is ready to hear. Right. Not, not what you want to say, what they're ready to hear. It's like their brain is this big lock you just have to find the key that they are ready for at that time. Yeah, the, the marketing nerds out there will recognize that as, um, as the state of awareness that a market mm-hmm. has, which, uh, who wrote uh, who wrote the book on that? Remind me, you probably... Oh, Eugene Schwartz, sure. right? Mm-hmm. Breakthrough advertising. Anyway, it probably shows up in other places too. It's a super important concept. Okay, Josh, I want to understand. Um, let's just go with my model, which is imperfect, I know. But my model is we all start with skill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, editing videos. Okay, there's a skill to that. Using yep. the software, um, you know, sort of understanding video formats and all these things. Like, that's the skill part. And then to, to just to use that as an example, your ability to use that skill to move the needle in a desirable way, make mom cry or, um, you know, the kids shut up for long enough to watch the video. <laughs> That's maybe the expertise part, right? Right. Um, cause you have to understand context. You have to understand, well, you know, a video, a video that's an instructional video for a lighting installer is going to look different <laughs> than these videos. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's where the context comes into play. So anyway, using that model, I'm going to assume you started with a basket of skills. And at some point you were like, these skills are not enough. I need something more. Mm-hmm. I need expertise. Maybe you didn't think of it in those terms. Um, when did that happen? Or perhaps when did that first happen? It might've been a serial sort of happened several times thing. So I have had the itch to help people with positioning and, and specialization for at least seven years. Okay. Well, I pre- I, predates my book, so I can't take credit for that. Go on. Right. <laughs> and, and, but what I kept finding is every time I would attempt to guide somebody through that conversation, it would, it would sputter out. There would be excuses. It just wouldn't work. Okay. That's fascinating. I, I imagine that was emotionally frustrating. Oh yes. Cause why you could see something they couldn't, what, what was, you know, what was frustrating about that? Why did you not just drop it and say, Oh, well. So to, to use the video editing analogy, it was as if I could imagine what the finished product would look like, Yeah. but I couldn't get all of the people aligned 
for long enough that the, that the final cut would come together, uh-huh. they would all disband and get off the bandwagon before you could ever get the site updated, before you, you could ever get, get aligned. And a lot of times what would happen is the reason it was so frustrating is that imagine the roller coaster of sales in a service firm. And as soon as some new opportunity and some new shiny object comes along, the, the attention of the team and the owners would go to this new shiny opportunity. Right. And, and in that moment, you abandon the courage to decide and to stick with something long-term. Developing expertise takes years. Right. So why would a firm that has you know, 10 or 20 people that are all doing different things, why would they want to go through the painful exercise of focusing? So that's what I kept, that's what I kept seeing over and over again. That's and, interesting. And, okay. And to layer on top of that, I felt like I didn't have the tool set that I needed to guide them through this. So <laughs> we were all standing kind of in the wilderness, you know, staring at our boots and it was just, it was just so frustrating. Okay. So what, what was the first thing that you tried to do to start to fix that situation? Because it sounds like you, you saw this, uh, you know, similar enough situation crop up multiple times that you started to say, okay, um, I need something I don't have in order to effectively address this situation. Cause it seems to keep coming up <laughs> Yeah, yeah. and you had a hunger. It sounds like to do something about it. So what's the first thing you tried or what's the first direction you struck out in? So one of the things that, one of the things that I tried was to be really good at spreadsheets. Huh? So for about five years, I just thought if I could manage the time of the team better and and play tetris with all of the different skill sets that we had we would be able to win so you sought and that sounds like a different solution than like it sounds like you were trying to address something other than the core pro- or what you would now see as the core problem well, so yeah, the, the core problem is focus and, and the courage to pick. Right. The, the solution was, so for instance, um, is it helpful, helpful if I give like really specific examples? It sure is for our listeners. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so I was working at a web design firm. This is back before content management systems were a thing. We were custom coding, you know, 30,000 to, you know, $50,000 websites. Oh, those were the days. (laughs) Those were the days. So we were in that world. We had more developers on staff than designers. It was probably about two thirds development, one third design. And what happened was a shift happened in the market. And suddenly we started selling this content management system. Right. And everybody else in town started selling WordPress. And the, the entire tide shifted. And so we had to, at that moment, decide, are we a custom development shop that goes up, this, uh, goes up the food chain for custom development? Or are we a design shop that figures out how to get really good at content management? Right. So that's when I would constantly have to kind of pivot. This is where, where I call myself the product marketer. I would have to pivot the entire firm and staff it and keep our utilization high when the entire market dynamic shifted. Wow. Fast forward five years, our content management system kept getting cannibalized and we became a HubSpot certified agency. Mm. And everybody in the agency had to look at each other and go, we don't believe in putting forms and gating all this content. We don't want to bother everybody with email. (laughs) We're a design (laughs) agency. Right. And what would happen every time is the, the entire DNA that we had built into the fabric of our existence of how we efficiently delivered results to clients would get ripped out of, out of what we're doing because the market changed. Right. And I'd have to rebuild our focus and change all the copy on the website and then retrain our team and then pretend that we knew what we were doing to new clients. We, we, 
affectionately called this, uh, you know, building the wings while we are flying the plane. Yeah, right. And it never stopped happening. But most firms would not ever explain to you that that's what's really happening on the inside. Right. Sure. How, how would you characterize that? So, so the first thing you tried when you started kind of feeling this, so you said spreadsheets and so you were pursuing operational efficiency, it sounds like. Yeah. Operational efficiency was my first attempt. Okay. My second attempt was productization. Hmm. So then what I started to do is I said, great, here's what we can do. We're going to sell the same type of project to the same type of client. We're going to reduce our cost of sale and our marketing efforts, and we are going to create operational efficiency through value pricing. Okay. So what I did is I was able to say, okay, I've got a developer over here. I've got a designer over here. I've got a copywriter over here. This team is like a pod of skills and I'm going to sell that as an X amount of time project. And I built a super efficient system using spreadsheets and uh, about 12 post-it notes. (laughs) And I increased our profitability by like 30%. Oh, that's incredible. Because we were able to now do behind the scenes in less time what the clients didn't care what the time and materials was. We, when we left the world of custom development, we got out of hourly billing. We stopped itemizing. We just started saying, this is the price for the website. And then we would, we would go through it. Eventually what I did was I gave the team enough time. This is, this is kind of the aha moment for me. Mm -hmm. I was able to give the, the team member enough freedom to do their role well enough that they never had to track their time again. Nice. And that works really, really well. If the agency principal has a clear direction for what business problem you're solving, but if you're not focused on solving one problem, that entire system blows up in your face because clients will say, Hey, I spent, thousands of dollars and I didn't get the result I was looking for. And that's when you have to pull out the timesheets and prove how hard you worked. Right. I've never had to prove how hard I work. If I solve a specific problem that the client told me was painful and they were willing to pay for it to be solved and you solved it. Nobody cares about timesheets when you solve things. Yeah. Funny how that works. Right. Um, yeah. You know, the brain brain surgery patient isn't um, wondering, <laughs> you know, like, so how many, uh, well, how they many might, they might worry how many surgeries the guy, the doctor has done, but yeah, they're not asking for timesheets. Yeah, that's for sure. So, so the self-awareness that happened to me over the, over the last, you know, amount of years was I kept seeing that it was actually the path to productization that became the aha moment because the only way to sell a repeatable project is to sell it in a way that solves a similar problem over and over and over again. Right. Thinking back to the productization um, learnings and not thinking so much from the operational perspective, but more from service, the perspective of designing a service that people want Mm -hmm. or enough people want. um, What's maybe the biggest thing you learned that might save folks some time if they're facing something similar? Oh, that's a big question. I know it is. And I did not prepare you for any of these. Uh, We can edit out Hmm. any silence while you think. (laughs) This was a big lesson for me. When you actually solve something worthwhile and painful. Mm Mm-hmm. You don't have to justify it. What do you mean justify it? A lot of times what happens when people try to sell a productized service, Mm -hmm. especially if it's a volume play, right? you just keep adding more and more widgets into the bucket and saying, you get this entire bucket of awesome if if you buy this. We're not punching down here. Would you put something like WP Curve in that? category of a sort of volume play productized service? Oh, I don't know what WP. Okay. Um, is there an example that would not be punching down to, to name them just so folks have something to kind of, um, 
you know, link what you're saying to. It's okay if not. I just always trying to make this stuff more sort of concrete. So so here's an example from the marketing world. Okay. Squarespace. Okay. So Squarespace is a, what, 200 bucks a year to build whatever site you want. Right. Versus if I said, I help restaurant owners build a site to fill up your tables on Friday night. I I'm solving a specific pain point for a specific target audience that brings it to life. That's perfect. You could do the same thing with Squarespace. You could, if you knew what you were doing. Yes. And the, the, the elementary school version of that for me was saying, Hey, we can build you a Squarespace site in four easy steps. It'll only take 30 days. It's only $1,000. What I'm doing then is I'm I'm only solving the pain of I don't know how to do it myself and I'm worried it'll take too long. Right, which that doesn't appear on any um, quarterly report that I've ever seen for a business. <laughs> correct, correct. That, that's what I mean by like that's a a it's a dull pain. It's yeah. not a burning pain. Right. But if I if I say I can't get people to show up to the restaurant on Friday night and my Yelp reviews aren't integrated with, you know, my, all my other stuff and I can't get open table, all of the, that specialization, you could build a very, very good value-based product offering, mm-hmm. but you have to understand one, who your target audience is and two, why that matters to them. And, and so that, that's kind of the, the thinking with, with a lot of that. Does that help? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you for that example. I, I think that really helps folks kind of um, see this stuff inside their head. Okay. So we are up to what maybe the third uh, thing you try that was spurred by this original hunger. Um, what, uh, what came next and how did you end up with, uh, with copywriting as your, your developing expertise? Okay. So the third thing I tried is um, I just tried brute force, honestly. Yep. When all else fails. (laughs) Um, I just thought, can I tell you a painful story? Oh, I I love those. Personally, I tell a lot of them myself. Okay. So so my last role, I was, I was um, working in a professional firm and we had half of the team that was design and, and branding creative that that's, they called themselves creative. Okay. The other half was development, right? super technical software engineers, totally different client bases, totally different skill sets. It it was as if we were running six different businesses within one building. Okay. And what kept happening is every time we would try to point the direction for the firm, either a new client opportunity would come in and look like this big, shiny, magical opportunity. Right. But what kept happening is nobody in the firm actually had a reason to work together to take the hill and to pick a specialization. Mm -hmm. And it was just really, really challenging because in trying to help with that, you, you become the bad guy because you are, you're basically saying people here, my specialty isn't good enough. The market doesn't need it. You know, Josh doesn't like me. All sorts of things happen because you are going after the livelihood of experts or at least really skilled, really skilled workers. Knowledge workers take a lot of offense when you tell them you don't want to offer their service anymore. Right. Right. That's, yeah. I mean, that's half a step away from saying, well, there's the door if you don't like it. Yeah. And so that's eventually what the painful part was, is it became my role to show people the door mm-hmm. and, and to really call the team to the point that then they could make, make the decision. Do you remember the first time you fired somebody? I mean, did you actually do that or did you just uh, sort of decide who got fired? That's been part of my role for the last 10 years is 
showing people the door. So, um, what have you learned from that? I've learned that you need to be really understanding of people. Okay. And my driving force has always been, I want people to be in a job that they love. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a reality in which lots of people believe is true, but, but in my thinking, you should be energized by being able to do something well enough that it excites you past the point of what you get paid for. Mm -hmm. And I think that we live in a world in which knowledge workers can find that type of role right. where one, they like the, they like the work they do. It, it brings them intrinsic value Two, they, they do it well enough that people want to pay them well for it. And three, you can be on a team that encourages you to get better and better at your craft and to develop expertise. How does that help you fire people? That helps me <laughs> fire people because it's really hard to sit across the table and say, you're good at design, mm -hmm. but, but you're not, you're not coming alive by the work that you're doing. It's not making you a better person. It's mm. not making our team better. And so I always had to keep, keep my eye on, I'm, I'm looking at the 20 year roadmap of where this professional firm is going to be. Right. That's the only way I could stay sane. Cause it's a really hard thing to do. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. <clears throat> you mentioned, or you sort of mentioned something that I want to explore a little more. Um, what role do you see sunk cost playing in the decision maker, uh, the decisions either of people like yourself or, uh, firm principals when they're, when they're kind of faced with these situations about the future of the firm? Give me an example of what you'd consider a sunk cost. We've, uh, half our portfolio comes from, um, this, uh, you know, type of client or vertical that we would exclude if we decided to focus if, or if we did this or alternately in the context of what we were just discussing, you know, we spent all this time training this person, bringing them up to speed and we've invested a lot in them. Mm -hmm. Those would be two examples. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've seen both of those. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> um, so To me, sunk costs are always the excuse that you use to try to sleep better at night. Oh. And that is why my first attempt at utilization failed because you can continuously try to make a better, faster widget. And as long as the market will keep asking you for widgets, you can self-justify why being undifferentiated and unspecialized is worthwhile because you're looking at the entire market and saying, well, I'll take as much of it as, as will give me. Most of the firms that I've worked at would, would jokingly say this, we'll take money from any client who will pay us as long as they're nice enough. Right. Yeah. Sometimes that gets lowered too, as long as the checks don't bounce. Right. Yeah. And what happened is I would have to stand with the owner of the firm and say, do you have a burning vision for where you want to take this firm? Or are you letting the market and your, your clients decide where your future is going to be? And there would come a point where they would say, either I can't make that decision because my team won't support it or my client, I, I have to depend on these clients or they would make, a decision, but it had to be long, long term enough that then we could make a plan to move them towards that. So in your move, Josh, <clears throat> this just the, the link between these two just occurred to me. I promise this, this was not me like setting you up for this, but so in your <laughs> move away from, you know, operations guy to, um, copywriter guy who's developing this expertise, did you walk away from sunk cost? Oh, absolutely. What did that look like? Honestly, what it looked like is 
the analogy of the maker versus manager schedule. Yes. So in that analogy, a maker spends six or eight hours a day doing something skilled. And a manager goes from one hour to another hour, hopping from, you know, fire to fire, putting out fires. I've had to retrain my entire brain on how I manage my time, how I manage my focus, my energy, my emotions, Mm -hmm. because I am now a maker and I had been a manager for over 10 years. Interesting. And that is really, really hard. Yeah. And it works. I think the exact same way, even when you reverse the direction of transition from maker to manager, you know, I think makers have to let go of that feeling of being able to just create something. And now they're orchestrating a team that does the creation. And so they're also, they're walking away from a sunk cost and and having to retrain in a big way how they spend their time and attention So, um, let's see, we're getting close to the end of our hour here and there's a few more things I'm curious about as you look down the road, Josh, and, and you have like this taste of what expertise is, right? Mm -hmm. How do you, um, sort of organize the quest for greater expertise? So one of the things that I have to do to organize myself is I have to put myself through the same exercise I put my clients through. Mm-hmm. I, I have to do a similar project over and over and over again in order to get better and more insight from the process. And it's really tempting to try to spread myself out and do a lot of different types of projects because it's more fun or it's more interesting, Mm -hmm. but I would not gain expertise nearly as fast. Have you had to say a difficult no yet? I've definitely seen a couple difficult no's. Mm -hmm. I... I think that I've been dodging them <laughs> before I can get <laughs> before I can get to that that hard point. Yeah, right. It's like like when you go on a diet, you throw all the potato chips out so you don't have to make that choice. Yeah. So focus is part of the journey forward. What else as you think about building this expertise that someday is going to be world-class. I'm sure of that because of how you're talking. What else is, you know, do you see being a part of the journey as you're kind of at this um, midpoint? I think that part of what I've had to, to coach myself through is knowing that it's worth it mm-hmm. five, 10 years down the road mm. um, to quote one of our, um, one of our, to, to quote David Baker as an example, when he's talking about building expertise, he says, you need to think about what you want your Google search results to look like 10 years from now. Right you need to be thinking really long-term and the temptation when you're running a consulting business and, and when you're, when you're going it alone is to just take the easy path some days. Right. And because expertise is, it doesn't, it doesn't always pay off right now. I'm telling myself the same thing about going to the gym. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I started, I uh, hired a personal trainer. I don't know. I don't think it's been a year, um, six, eight months ago. And like, I am just now seeing the tiniest noticeable result. <laughs> right. <laughs> you just magnify that by, I don't know, 10 or 20 
or a hundred times. I, I really do. I, I agree with you so completely on that, Josh, that um, expertise is an investment. It's no different, really, fundamentally than going to med school in that you are, um, you know, it's a big investment up front. Yeah. And you don't see the rewards of that. There might be some emotional and intellectual rewards wide away, but there's no career reward for a good 10 years. Yeah. I heard an interesting stat. I was sitting down with a financial planner recently and he said, statistically, the best way to make an income right now is to move jobs every one to two years. Right. Because people are overpaid for their first one to two years, and then they are underpaid for the, the next 20. Mm -hmm. But if you are going independent and you are starting a business, specifically a business of expertise, you may have a sunk cost for the first couple of years because one, you're developing your own business and two, you're getting expertise that people may not value yet. I kind of view it as I, it's, I think about it as I'm discounting myself from the aspect of, I want to learn as quickly and as repeatedly as possible so that someday I'll be able to, to charge these world-class rates. Yeah. I've done the same. I, there might be a, a sort of a, a middle way or a third way, yeah. but I have figured that the value of a lot of similar experience in a short period of time builds a sort of expertise asset that I can monetize um, at quite a higher rate, you know, five, mm -hmm. 10 years in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Josh Brammer, thank you so much for sharing what the journey is like and all these other interesting things that we've been able to talk about. How could folks at home um, see what you're up to, follow along if they want to reach out for questions, that kind of thing? Yeah. It, if somebody wanted to reach out, my website is hellolantern.com. And that's my copywriting agency. Mm -hmm. We focus specifically on service firms, helping experts explain what they do as simply as you can. Josh, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.